If you are in the minority and you don't know who this man is, you, your life is about to be made complete. Uh, Ray uh, served as pastor uh, here at the church uh, before Adam, and he's just an amazing man and has been uh, has meant just so much uh, to us here. And uh, I always forget how many years were you uh, uh, senior pastor? Thirteen or fourteen years senior pastor, and then it felt like twenty, and then a few more years as associate pastor, and so. Uh, again, a lot of uh, of what you experience here on a weekly basis is in large part of the way the the Lord uh, used him uh, to uh, to lay so much groundwork here, and so we just appreciate uh, Ray. And it's always fun to to have him. You want me to keep going? I'll keep going. What else can we say? Uh, no, it's always fun to have uh, Ray back with the mic. And so, why don't we pray for Ray? I know that uh, the Lord's given him a word, and so uh, let's position our hearts uh, to receive this morning. So, Lord, thank you for Ray. Uh, we love him, and we are ready uh, to hear your word this morning. And so we just want to tune our minds and our hearts uh, to receive from you. And we invite you to just uh, empower Ray, anoint Ray, give him just boldness and confidence. And, yeah, just help him this morning and help us. And we want to honor you this morning by receiving your word. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thanks, Andrew. Morning, everybody. Hey, I just had a thought. He said there's a waiting list for the uh, Christmas banquet, but then he also said that they needed acts. So the way in is to tell Andrew that you've got an act, and then you're thinking, yeah, but I have no talent at all, and I go, great, that actually qualifies you even more. Um, so that's the that's definitely the way to get in. Um, my name's Ray. It's good to see you all uh, here today. And um, I... Uh, I um, Really look forward to the chances I have to uh, to be able to chat with you guys. Um, I don't do it very often anymore, so I'm a little bit rusty, but I appreciate my family that gives me encouragement. My son sent me a text today that said, good luck today, don't suck. Um, so that was nice of him. And uh, I felt really encouraged by that, and there was absolutely no pressure at all. And um, sometimes people ask me, Go ahead, ask me, say, so what have you been doing with yourself lately? So there you go. Thank you. Good. I'm so, I'm so glad you asked because what I've been doing is I've been uh, doing some business consulting, some church consulting, some speaking, and some writing. And uh, so in the Shameless Commerce division of the Vineyard, uh, I wanted to share with you a couple of the, the projects that I have out. Uh, and uh, this one, I'm, I, I so appreciated when Matt Peterson was here and he said that he had a book that he wanted to share with you because he really believed it was awesome. Well, I, I really believe in this little book that, uh, that uh, I wrote last year. Uh, last year, on a whim, within two weeks, I brought this out right at Christmas time just as a Kindle book, and it sold about 500 copies. And I got, like, some of the nicest notes back. Uh, 25 Days of Christmas, devotional for incredibly busy people. Each devotional you can read in a minute or less. And the idea is then that if it's memorable at all, you can kind of keep just that one thought with you uh, all throughout the day. And uh, this year, it's available in paperback and on Kindle. Um, you know how sometimes you get invited somewhere for Thanksgiving and you bring them like a fruitcake or something as, you know, the gift that you give to your host? Forget the fruitcake. Bring your host this book. And then my, my ideal uh, Thanksgiving meal is that the host also thinks of their guests and has one of these at each of their places. So... Um, <laughs> So this is, uh, this is out. It's on Amazon. Uh, who would like this copy? 
There we go. And it's not, so you're offended, aren't you? I mean, give me your name. Were you first? Oh, probably second. <laughs> okay. Look, when I look at you the next time, put your hand right up, okay? All right. Here we <laughs> okay, so then there's this second book. <laughs> so then there's this second book that I wrote, and it's a collection of really non-lame spiritual stories. At least I hope they're non-lame. And um, uh, this is, uh, again, it's, uh, it's, uh, was started out as an as a, uh, e-book, and, uh, and this one has done real well all year long. So I decided to bring out a little bitty paper. Who would like this one? <laughs> there you go. You get a freebie. There you go. So uh, those two are out. And then uh, the last thing that I wanted to tell you about uh, and actually ask for your help is uh, I have been working on uh, a weekend retreat uh, about spirituality. And um, so uh, the vineyard has been nice enough to allow me to use this facility on December 13th and 14th uh, uh, regarding discipleship, how to go deep and how to help other people go deep. And uh, this will be a first. So whoever decides to come to this will be guinea pigs. Uh, And the truth is I should pay you uh, tuition for me to practice on you. Uh, But there are a few expenses involved. So it's going to be $29 a person. But if you're a married couple, it'll be $58. So did did you get that? Did you get that? Good. Uh, So uh, if you're so inclined, uh, please help me discover uh, exactly how to round out uh, this thing, but uh, it's going to be uh, December uh, 13th and uh, 14th. And I'm really like super excited about this because I'd like to take this show on the road uh, and uh, share a little bit about what God's done here at the Vineyard over the last almost 20 years now uh, here at the Vineyard uh, with other churches. So uh, this is going to be our dry run before Christmas. So mark your calendar, save the date as they say. All right, enough of the shameless commerce division. Oh, and I see I'm just about out of time. So if the ministry team would come up. All right. Um, uh, Pastor Adam uh, has been on sabbatical during the month of uh, November, and uh, it's been really good. You know, he's been places. He's been like to Charlotte. He's been to New York City. Uh, I got a postcard from Osaka, Japan, and I understand now that he's in New Zealand touring where they made The Hobbit. So uh, he is certainly making the uh, most of his November off. I want you to be sure to ask him about Osaka uh, when he comes back because that was just one long weekend where apparently he didn't sleep. And uh, no, I won't say any more about that, but you can ask him uh, when he gets here. But then that means that uh, Brian Ingalls uh, talked to us uh, two weeks ago in Pastor Adam's stead, and he talked to us about access uh, to the Father. It's a really, really good message. Uh, Jim Banks talked to us last week, and, I, and I'm presuming that some of that was based off of the weekend thing that uh, he and Pat did about seeing ourselves as complete in the Father, and uh, I made several notes uh, in my notebook uh, about that one. And the the recurring theme has been going on since our fall conference, and that recurring theme has been the Father's house, the Father's house. And uh, that's uh, that's a little bit of what I'm going to talk to you about today. And I and I wonder what comes into your mind when you think about the Father's house. Uh, what is it that comes into your mind when you think about that place where God dwells. And um, so uh, those are the things that, uh, that we're going to talk about. Oh, hey, guess what? I brought notes too. I should look at those every once in a while. Otherwise, I'll just be vamping. Um, Kim and I, my lovely bride, Kim, is right over there. Give it the queenly wave. There she is. Um, uh, we did celebrate. It's done. 29 years, right? 
Last week, 29 years of marriage. Um, yeah. And that should all go for her because, um, wow, um, I couldn't live with me for 29 years, but she sure has. And Kim and I have lived a number of places. And when I started to think about the Father's house, I started to, to think about some of the places that we've lived and some of the things we've experienced in, uh, in our house. Uh, this is an actual picture of 4018 Finley Drive in Irving, Texas, uh, which is uh, uh, the first house that we ever owned together. And um, uh, back then, when we lived there, Google Maps was just starting out so that the Google Maps car actually had to get out and put the little A pin into the, into the yard and take the picture, and then they'd go on to the next one. That's not true. I just I got that off of uh, Google Maps uh, last night. Um, but I, I want to tell you about some people that, uh, that have, have been to that house. Can I tell you about people that have been to that house? Um, we, uh, it was a, it's a little three-bedroom, two-bath ranch uh, in Irving, Texas, not far from where the Cowboys used to play and not far from the airport. And um, it was the first home that we bought together. And pretty sweet, pretty special. And we had all kind of people that uh, lived there. Uh, uh, th- about 85 is when we bought this, 85, 86. And that was right about the time that little Tommy Cruz was in uh, Top Gun. So uh, fighter pilots were really, really cool. And there was a fighter pilot from Oklahoma City who was really hearing the call to the kingdom of God. And he would come down uh, just about every weekend. And whenever he had leave, he was a single guy. And, and he would just stay with us. And he would be a part of the church family that I was a part of. And um, just hungry, hungry, hungry. And, uh, and when we bought the home, the first place that, that my wife uh, decorated was our guest room. And this guy stayed and just soaked in everything that he could uh, about the kingdom of God. And he was, he was like a regular, regular part of our family. And um, uh, in this house as well, there was a young woman who had had an abortion and she was recovering more from the emotional and psychological effects of that abortion. And she stayed with us for a, a long period of time. And uh, my wife just talked to her and ministered to her and, uh, and really helped uh, impact uh, that young woman's life. We had an older guy, um, at least I thought he was older then, but he's probably my age now, uh, who was a, he was from Wyoming, but he was in Texas because he worked in a uranium mine. And uh, it's true, we'd go by the guest room at night and there'd be a little glow under the door from him having worked there. Uh, And uh, Wyoming was too far for him to go home when he would get time off. So he'd come and he would stay with us. And then uh, for a week or so, his wife came down from Wyoming and and they they were in our home. And uh, I I, I had no idea the, the degree of risk and pressure and stress that minors were under, but he would come and he would stay and... uh, he had this sweetness about him that just permeated the house that wasn't radioactive or it was spiritually radioactive in a really, really good way. Um, and, uh, and, and he was just a regular fixture at our home for, for a long period of time. Um, then we had a young couple that uh, was uh, recovering from drug addiction and from unemployment, uh, chain smokers, couple of packs a day. And, um, uh, I was lucky. I was in the business world, so, you know, I'd get up in the morning, I'd go off to work, and uh, and they would settle in uh, with that new invention back then in the 80s called cable TV, and they would just start to watch TV, and this would go on, went on day after day after day, and my wife said, and, and my wife is the compassionate member of our unit, 
but you know she she would say you know this isn't good for them they're they're just sitting here and um so uh I, so one morning uh, I, I told the young man about 21 22 i said hey get up I, I i want you to ride with me somewhere and so he rode with me at like eight o'clock in the morning i took him to Irving Boulevard, which is this long industrial street that goes from Irving all the way into Dallas, and it runs for like 15 miles. And uh, he said, where are we going? I said, there are at least, conservatively in my estimation, 20 jobs on this street, and I'm going to drop you off here, and I'm going to go to work, and I'll pick you back up at 5 o'clock. And I'll bet you that you can have a job by the end of the day. And I gave him like, you know, 5 or 10 bucks for, you know, for lunch and said, see you later. So I picked him up at the end of the day. And then they felt led by God to move out the next day. That's a true story. That really is a true story. Um, so we, you know, we had we had all kind of people that uh, that stayed there. Uh, one last one. We had a, a German kid, college student who was touring America, and he had met a, a, a brother in the Lord that lived in Oklahoma City. A typical European perspective. Uh, this German kid gets into Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport at about 9 o'clock one night and calls the guy in Oklahoma because on the map, Oklahoma City looks really close to Dallas. And so he said, I'm here. And you always said if I needed a place to stay uh, that I should just call. And so my friend from Oklahoma called me and said, you know, can you go get this kid? And uh, and so the German kid stayed with us for a little while. And, uh, and, it's, and it's always uh, instructive to have somebody from another culture in your home. Uh, we offered him a soft drink that night, and uh, we, you know we just you know we put a bunch of ice in the glass and we poured it and we gave it to him and he held the glass up and he went one, two, three, four. He said six ice cubes. You Americans, one ice cube would have made this cold. And I said well, thank you. I appreciate you instructing me about that. Um, and you know he moved on. He was just you know but it, it, we've had all kind of people in that house. Um, we. We also had two in, two kind of people in that house in particular. Uh, our, our, our oldest child, Joe, uh, was born in 1986, and um, uh, he came and stayed like a long time, <laughs> right? He stayed a long time. It's so sweet. We had a, we had a poodle back then, a, a little bitty tiny black poodle. Uh, yes, I surrendered my man card a long time ago. And Kim was pregnant, and and honestly, the I think the poodle watched us prepare the nursery. We were preparing a place for our son to come home to, and uh, Kim uh, started to go into labor. And um, uh, for a while, she just laid down on the living room floor, and uh, and with that first pregnancy, a lot of her labor was in her low back, and so she was just kind of like trying to be on a on a hard surface and like the poodle knew something was up because she started the, she the poodle not Kim started running around in in circles around Kim and then off we went to the uh, off we went to the uh, hospital and 7:30 or so the next morning Joe was born and then we brought Joe back and the nursery was done and you know uh, my brother and sister-in-law who are not here right now uh, they just had a little baby but where are they not that brother-in-law did you just have a baby? Did your wife? All right. Anyway, so you just, he really wanted to be a part. No book for you, David. Um, all right. So, um, so we brought Joe back, you know, from the hospital two or three days later. And the, the poodle met us at the door. And we walked Joe as a ranch, one story, right? So we walked him down the hallway 
and into the nursery that we had prepared. And honest to goodness, the poodle stopped, sat at the threshold of the nursery and looked in as we were laying Joe in the crib. And I just looked at her and I said, it's okay, you can come in here. And then she came into the room. The, the, the poodle knew instinctively that this guest was different than other guests. Just knew it instinctively. It was amazing. Um, and Joe um, turned out to be a very uh, rambunctious and precocious kid. 18 months, he had memorized and could recite the owl and the pussycat. I'm not making 18 months. Um, uh, he was just outgoing, and he was like incredibly uh, winsome uh, little kid. Uh, and then our, our first of our two daughters uh, also uh, came home here to this house. Uh, and uh, Evie was born with this precocious older brother. Well, first, let me tell you a, story, a pregnancy story about Evie. Um, you, you see, guys think that if you've had one baby, that you are an expert in having babies, ladies. You've been through it, so you must know what's going on. And so Kim is nine months pregnant, and we're headed to a church function one night, and I'm taking a back road, and my wife starts hitting my arm. And I said, what, what? And she goes, you are trying to hit the potholes on purpose. Um, and uh, it, it's so unlike her to actually criticize my driving. Uh, so why, why are you laughing? Is, well, anyway, so she's sitting there and she goes, you're hitting the potholes on purpose. And I thought, no, I'm really, really not. And then we finally got to where we were going. We're at the, the church that we were a part of. And she's sitting there that evening. And she goes, I, I guess it wasn't the potholes. I think I'm in labor. And we didn't, we didn't even make it home that night off to the hospital. And, and uh, Evie was born. And Evie was this remarkably uh, quiet, quiet child with this incredibly outgoing older brother. And I, honestly, I don't think Evie's like said a word at all until she was like two years old because someone would, would say, oh, you know, Evangeline, how sweet you are. And, you know, you know ask her a question and then and her older brother would answer it. Um, and uh, when, when Evie came to be with us, we, we, cre- we took the guest room and it made a transition from a guest room into a nursery. It's a big transition in our house. Um, and so this is like, you know, 85, 86, 87, 88, 89. Yes, I'm that old. Uh, all of these stories that I'm telling you, uh, they are related directly to this house. Now, fast forward a few years, and this is the other house that the Lord has allowed us uh, to have. And uh, this is in uh, 42718. This is in Campbellsville. And uh, we've, we've had a few guests here in this house as well. Um, we had... Um, uh, we had a family, or a husband and a wife, who were from California, but they were adopting a child in Kentucky. For many years, my wife was the director of uh, the Crisis Pregnancy Center here in town, and she stepped a young woman through the process of uh, bringing a baby full term and, uh, and then giving that child, this infant, the gift of, a, of an intact family uh, because this young woman was just in her late teens or early 20s and loved her child like you wouldn't believe, uh, but wanted to be able to give this child every advantage. Now, we've kept in touch with that uh, adoptive family, and uh, Jack is now 12, 13, 13 on Facebook. You know, he's the, he's the you know, freshman in high school with the, you know, the shoulder pads, you know, playing football. It's really, really neat. 
Uh, and they stayed with us for three or four weeks. Californians, they're different people. Anybody here from California? Anybody? Good. So I can rag on them pretty good. All right. Uh, Californians, they're a different kind of people. They, you know, they, uh, Kentucky state law adoption is, you know, is, is a little bit of a, you know, of some hoops to jump through. And so they stayed in our home for two or three weeks while the paperwork was being done. And Jack, the newborn infant, stayed with our mother and father-in-law. Uh, and that kept them uh, legally compliant that they weren't uh, – uh, they didn't have the child until the judge said, you can have the child. Uh, and then at the same time, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning, you know, my mother-in-law would get up and bring the baby over, which was smart on her part, and let them take care of the baby all, all day. But uh, they're from California, so, you know, they get, you know, these cam- they get a camcorder out on a day that we have a thunderstorm. And, and I can hear him like, you know, you remember back in the days when people used to narrate to the camcorder, hey, look, it's a thunderstorm. And then, oh, look, we're having hail. This is actual hail. You know, it's like, you know, because in California, you know, it's always sunny. It never rains. Everything's perfect. And they were just absolutely like eating up this, this Kentucky, you know, kind of life. Um, our hearts got knit to that family through the process of a young woman giving birth a young woman giving this gift of a family uh, to her to her birth child, and and you know we're still in touch with all of the members of that family, and that's been I don't know, 13 or 14 years ago. Uh, they came and they stayed with us. Um, we had um, we had a, a foreign exchange student from the Netherlands um, that during Joe's senior year in high school came and stayed with us, and uh, this was the most amazing thing. Uh, the Netherlands, they're kind of the, you know, the, the, the Norse, Teutonic, you know, really tall, good-looking, and very, very structured and ordered kind of people. Now, that's every stereotype you can get all rolled into one ball real quick. Uh, and this young lad stayed with us from August all the way through until May. And um, uh, during the course of the year that he stayed with us, you know, you can't live in close quarters with somebody for a long period of time without developing some affection for them. I mean, even their flaws that drove you crazy in August and September, you know, by January or February, you just kind of grimace a little, but you grin and you, and you, and it's just them. And you're going through that process of from stranger to member of the family over that length of time. Uh, my other brother and sister-in-law who had four boys, that's you, David, uh, our other Brother and sister who had four boys, you know, they bonded with this young man uh, as well. Um, uh, first name spelled J. Can you see this? Imagine a blackboard. J-O-U-K-E. J-O-U-K-E. Got it? Anybody know how to pronounce that except for the Mannings? Who, who said that? Yauka is correct. Yauka. You know, because we picked him up at the airport. And we said, is your name Juki? Is your name? What is it? It's Yauka. Yeah. Uh, And, um, you know, here's the amazing thing is that um, this kid came from a family of very little faith background. He was, and some of you may remember him, even though it's been 10 years, uh, he was a regular part of our family life, which means he came with us to the vineyard. Uh, Europeans, again, just to throw one more stereotype on top of another, uh, when, when they get vacation, they get six, eight, or 20 weeks at a time on vacation. So first his mom took a vacation. She came and stayed with us for a few weeks. Then his dad came and stayed with us and stayed with us for a few weeks. And um, he became such a part of us that in May, when it was time for him to go back, we were all waiting at uh, the Louisville airport for his plane. 
And I noticed that this really kind of headstrong, extremely confident, nice kid, but very, very headstrong and confident, almost argumentative kid started to get more and more quiet. Um, and then I, you know, I looked at the clock and I said, Yauka, it, it's time for you to go through security. And he just starts crying, just starts crying. And then, you know, everybody starts crying. My, my wife starts crying. My kids start crying. The cousins that were with us start crying. There's this hug fest that goes on. And, um, and I'm from Chicago, so that's really off-putting to me. Um, stereotype. Uh, and when, when he left, it was like a part of us was going just over that short period of time. And, you know, so the, these were some of the people that, that came and stayed at this house. But wait, there was somebody else that came and stayed at this house. She's here today, and that's, that's our third child, our daughter, Caitlin. Uh, Caitlin loves the limelight, so she's mortified right now that I've just <laughs> called her name out. Um, and um, uh, I, I advisedly told the story about this adoption procedure that we'd done with this family from California because it absolutely melted our hearts for the beauty of the gospel that it's, you know, you know the passage where it says that the spirit of adoption is put into our hearts and it causes us to cry out, Abba, Father? Do you, do you know that passage? It's amazing. You see, adoption is really part of the heart of the gospel. And so in 2003, um, uh, after um, the most bureaucratic process on the face of the earth, uh, and after a long period of time and after a, a considerable sum of money, um, we all left, uh, Kim and Ray and Joe and Evie, and we went to China uh, looking for when they would put our baby daughter into our arms. And, um, wow, what a day that was. We were, we were in what they called a, a small town. It was about 4 million people, Nanchang. And, and really, you know, like if you talk to somebody from China, if you're, you know, over at the university or something, I go, I have, you know, I was in Nanchang. They go, where's that? Um, you know, Beijing's 20 million people or something. And so we're on the third floor of this hotel, and our, and our guide, um, who was a Chinese believer, says, I just got a cell call from the nannies, and there were 10 family, 10 adoptive families going to be there. And, and he said, they're, they're in the parking lot. Let's just gather around and let's pray real quick before the babies come. And, um, and he began to pray this beautiful prayer that described the process of, of Joseph of Nazareth receiving the Son of God as though he, the Son of God, were his own, Joseph of Nazareth. And he said, and, and, and in this prayer, this brother said, Lord, even as Joseph received Jesus into his home and later in time, Jesus received Joseph back into his home. And, and I mean, I'm like right there, you know? And then, you know, and it's almost as though it were scripted. Spielberg couldn't have done better. The, the elevator goes ding. And out come, you know, these, these Chinese nannies with two babies per arm. And Joe immediately recognizes Katie, like immediately recognizes, that's her, because we had a few still pictures and he says, that's her. And people are crying. There's 10, you know, families here. People are crying. And um, the, the, part of the bureaucratic process is, is we're not going to give you the baby until all the paperwork has been signed. And there's 10 families there. So the nannies are just standing there with the babies. And you're like, but that's our kid. That's our kid. That's our kid. That's our kid. And, you know, so you could get close. 
I, I won't do it to you. You could, you could get close. So, you know, you go right up and you go, hello, could you get you know, that sort of thing? And these, these families, us included, you know, we're like crying. And one of the really funny stories of it was is that although Joe recognized Katie immediately just from a still picture, one family got their baby wrong. And so this mom is standing right next to a nanny holding a baby. And this mom is crying her eyes out going, I've waited for you so long. And then they said, oh, over here, this one's yours. <laughs> right? And uh, so then she just went over, I've waited for you for such a cry again. It was great. Um, and uh, that was 2003. That was 10 years ago. Uh, Katie's 10. She'll turn 11 in February. And um, one of the nice things about having had birth children and adoptive children is that we've been able to talk with parents who have struggled with infertility or, you know, have looked at other options uh, for building a family. And we've been able to share with them that adoption is the heart of the gospel. Uh, And we've been able to share with them that what makes a family a family is the knitting of hearts, not an accident of biology. What makes a family a family is shared life together, shared time together. What makes a family a family is sacrifice for one another. Uh, And getting to that point to where even somebody's shortcomings actually move your heart in a a good way. Right? So so those are some of the people that have come and and visited us at, uh, um, uh, at this house. So... You're thinking, so I've just called you together here today, uh, both to worship the Savior and for me to tell you a bunch of personal stories, right? You're wondering, you know, in this church, and uh, don't they ever study the Bible here? Well, you know, sometimes, sometimes we do. If you brought a Bible today, and I hope you did, you, you can either uh, scroll or open your app or your turn to the right page for John's Gospel, chapter 14. And uh, let's see if I can bring this home in the next hour and 10 minutes. Do you think I can do that? Okay. John's Gospel, chapter 14. And um, uh, some of this may be familiar to you. Some of it may not be familiar to you. Uh, but, I, but I want to continue on this theme about uh, the Father's house. That's, that's where we're going with this. And uh, in this passage, uh, Jesus uh, is speaking to uh, his closest friends. And he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My my father's house has many rooms that if that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am and that you may know the way to the place where I'm going And then Thomas, the total buzzkill, says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, uh, so how can we know the way? All right, thank you, Thomas. And uh, kind of a famous passage and even more famous answer that Jesus gives in the next verse. Yeah? And uh, I want to talk about uh, the the Father's house and go through just a few steps with respect to this passage. And um, uh, the didactic side of me, I I need to point out a few things. when does Jesus say all those words? Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, also believe in me. He says them on the very night that he has the Last Supper. He says them on the night that he's going to be betrayed. Uh, he says them on the night 
in which he will be arrested, in which he will be slapped around by the temple police and then delivered over to the civic authorities of Rome who will beat him and who will give him 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails. He says all of this on the night before he ends up crucified by midday the next day. That's when he says all of this. And in saying all of this, the setting is he's sharing one final meal with the people that he's been with for three years. In other words, shared life, shared time uh, together. And he doesn't just say, uh, don't let your hearts be troubled because uh, they've all seen the uh, Mel Gibson movie and they know what's coming. Uh, It's because there's this incredible sense of foreboding that he and his friends have. Uh, Their hearts are troubled because in chapter 13, Jesus has said some startling things. In chapter 13, Jesus said, one of you guys is going to betray me three times before the morning light. And it's like, but Jesus, we've been together for three years. Can, Can you imagine that? Can you imagine someone looking at you, and I won't pick anybody out, someone looking at you and say, before the morning light, you're going to betray your spouse. And you're going, what? What? Because you're thinking, man, you know, I've already been with this person for three years. I'm willing to die and fight for this person. And so they're troubled and filled with anxiety about that. One of their member leaves after some mysterious words uh, from Jesus. Jesus has done these, like, incredibly... Can I, can I say it this way, off-putting things, like stripping down to the waist and washing their feet when he's the boss man? All of that has gone on this night. In fact, if you read John's gospel, do you know that, count with me now, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 18, and chapter 19, seven chapters of John's 21 chapters all take place within a 24-hour period. You talk about the narrative slowing down to get your attention to what's going on. And Jesus has said, there's going to be betrayal. Everyone's going to be scattered. Where I'm going, you can't follow. And then he says, don't be troubled. But that's the context. There's love, there's intimacy, there's questions, there's incredible predictions, there's, there's outright fear. And Jesus' solutions for them uh, are such. He says, don't let your hearts be afraid. Now, it, it doesn't take much in the way of jumping two millennia for us to see the application to where Jesus says that in the most confusing circumstances, when the temptation would be, to outright confusion and fear, that the answer to confusion and fear is to trust him. Well, duh, he's the preacher. He's supposed to say that. Now, the problem with it is that these verses are so familiar to us. They are so uh, famous that, like, for example, King James says, you know, have faith in God, also have faith in me. Here's what I've discovered in my life. The word faith is almost meaningless to me. I have to, every time I read the New Testament, substitute the word trust for faith because faith isn't for me propositional, uh, point A, point B, therefore point C. Oh, I believe that. For me, faith always has to be relational. 
Who is it that I've shared my life with? Who is it that I have invested and bet the mortgage on for this one person? And so faith is trust, trust in me. And you see, Jesus even says it this way. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Besides the fact that that's a borderline heretical and really a, a, a divinity claim by Jesus, what he's also saying is that if God seems too remote, then trust in me, your friend that you've been with for three years. You know the, the cute little Sunday school story about, oh, honey, don't worry about the thunderstorm, just trust in God. Yeah, well, sometimes I need God with skin on. You've, you've heard that story, right? Yeah, I hate that. They have pictures of kittens when they tell it and stuff like that. Faith is relational. And it's really important for us to begin to define faith in terms of what are my shared experiences with someone and how much trust have those experiences engendered? That's, that's a huge calculation for us to be able to do. And the way through fear and uncertainty and confusion and, and just downright mind-numbing things is instead of focusing on the trouble, focus on the person. So, for example, if my wife came home tomorrow and said crazy things that I won't even try to, to outline those crazy things... I would go, what, 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 what? And then I would say, but wait, 29 years of shared life together, 29 years of shared life, I trust her. I can't even pretend to say that I would understand it, but I trust her. And then we'd proceed from there. And that's part of what Jesus is saying in these verses in in John 14. The first verses are, don't let your heart be troubled. The issue is trust. Now, uh, you know the passage that Paul writes, it's really great about the peace which passes understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. You know that passage? You know, you know how many of us want to have it both ways? We want to have the peace and we want to have the understanding. But the truth is you can't have the peace that passes understanding until you give up your right to understand everything. And most importantly, the only thing you need to do is trust in the relationship. Trust in the relationship. Now, this can be towards the Lord Jesus. It can be in a husband and wife relationship. It can be to a father, to a daughter. It can be among best friends. I have lifelong friends. Lifelong. And I trust the relationship, even when they seem to me to be doing harebrained things. And I can even tell them, that, that's stupid. And they go, well, I'm going to do it. And I say, all right, I got you back. I mean, really, it's like, you know, it's like, I, you know, I don't care if you're stupid or if you turn out to be really, really smart and you get to do the I told you so thing. Either way, I'm just with you. Okay. So, you know, the path to not letting your heart be troubled, it's trust. And it's not propositional trust. It's not intellectual trust. It's not trust based on understanding. It's trust based on relationship. It's trust based on relationship. And then Jesus says the most amazing thing. He says, in my father's house, there's many rooms, right? The, the, the graceful King James Version says that uh, in my father's house, there are many mansions, right? Very, very beautiful. And, uh, you know, that has framed so much of our imagination, at least mine, 
you know, I've thought of, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I was a lit major, so I've thought of, you know, uh, the, the, the king or queens of England and these incredible halls, you know, these mansions, room after room after room after room. And, uh, you know, as, as a pastor, I've stood at a lot of gravesides and I've read this passage as a source of comfort to people. In my father's house, there's many rooms. I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. And I'm going to come and I'm going to take you to be with me. And at a graveside, when you're dealing with a husband who's lost a wife, when you're dealing with children who've lost a parent, when when you're dealing with any kind of loss, that's remarkably comforting. It is remarkably comforting. And you may be facing the imminent loss of somebody. You may be afraid of death yourself. You might be facing the idea of, uh, you know, I've been married for 40 years. How could I even face the thought of going on without somebody for another 10 or 15 years? Any of those things. This is part of the comfort that Jesus has to offer. And that is that God's house is big enough. And that just like we've prepared nurseries three times, there's a place prepared and waiting for us. Does that resonate with you? Good. Because I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. I think that it's perfectly legitimate. I think that it's part of how we should apprehend these verses. But the reason that I did the seven chapter thing and the 24 hours and all of the changes that were going on, um, okay, Bible scholars among us, on Good Friday, what event happens? It's not hard. It's not a trick question. Jesus dies on Easter Sunday. Yeah, good. A for the class. Okay. On Easter Sunday, what happens? Okay, can we change he arises or he's resurrected for he comes back? Can we do that? He comes back. Jesus says to his disciples on this night, Where I'm going, you can't go with me right now. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come back, it's going to be so that we can be together forever. There's something that Jesus accomplishes. Now, you understand, I believe in streets of gold. I believe in mansions. I believe in the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. No more crying, sorrow, tears, no more suffering. God wipes away every tear from our eye. I believe in that day, which we either get to through the portal of death or through the second coming of Jesus. But there was a coming of Jesus where he said, oh yeah, you remember Friday? Well, I'm back. And everybody went, yikes. They were scared to death. They were amazed. Thomas flat out didn't believe it on the testimony of other people. And even the people who saw Jesus thought they were seeing the gardener or a ghost or who knows what, and it totally freaked them out. I believe that on this night that Jesus is betrayed, he's trying to say the Father's house is being prepared for you right now. The Father's house is being prepared for you so that you and I can be together very soon. You with me on that? So what is the Father's house? You know, in John's gospel, there's only one other reference to the Father's house. 
John chapter 2, Jesus makes a whip and drives out the animals and turns over the table of the money changers and he screams, my father's house is supposed to be a place of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. That's the only other place in John's gospel where he refers to my father's house is the temple, the temple. And the temple was the place where God's presence dwelt. And now he says, on the very night when everything is going to get rolling for good, he says, my father's house is big enough for all of us to live in together. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you there. I'm going to prepare. Now, I think that this was so remarkable to them that Jesus also has to, I'm not like, you know, super smart Bible guy, but I can't remember any other place. Jesus sometimes says, yea, verily, verily, I tell you, or translation, truly, 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 I tell you. But I can't know of any other place where Jesus just simply says this, look, if it weren't true, I wouldn't be saying it. But this, he actually like gets up in your grill and says, I wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. And part of the challenge for us, part of the challenge for us is that this news is so good that we have trouble believing it. We have trouble believing it. But this is what he's promising us, that he has prepared a place that we can inhabit that is like the place of his presence in the here and in the now. In fact, here's, here's what I think. I think he cleansed the temple the first time out of anger and zeal and with a whip. And I think he cleansed the temple the second time by washing the disciples' feet and saying, you're clean. That's what I think was going on. It's just an opinion. And as we've already talked about, he said, look, I'm coming back to you. And, and I, do, I look for the second coming of the Lord Jesus. I, I await that day. Man, if I'm alive, it's going to be like a rip-roaring, amazing, mind-blowing day. But I think what he was saying is, I'm coming back for you because not even death can hold me back from the purpose of establishing my father's kingdom in the here and now. And Ben Witherington III, who is like a super smart Bible guy, says that the Johannine community made almost no distinction between the heavens and the earth after the ministry of Jesus. For them, heaven had begun to come to earth. And so, why did I tell all those stories about our house? And part of the reason is is that on November the 10th in 1984, Kim and I not only pledged ourselves to one another, but we also, we also established an outpost of God's kingdom called a new family unit. And our home became the locus of that outpost for passers through, fighter pilots recovering Uh, women recovering from abortion, uh, men that worked in uranium mines, to those who weren't passing through three different children who have come and stayed. And in fact, it's nearly unthinkable to me, it's painful beyond description, that any child who has a home could live as if he or she doesn't have a home. We're an outpost of the kingdom. And we can model what the Father's house is like. And then Thomas simply says, yeah, but the problem is I don't know the way. 
and you've already said we can't come with you. And I'm so grateful for Thomas because he asked, you know, it's like, you know, there's no such thing as a dumb question, but there is an assembly of remarkably stupid people in the room. And, um, and Thomas is that guy that always verbalizes it, to which I always go, Whew, I'm glad he asked the question, right? I'm glad he asked the question. And that's when you get the famous answer from Jesus. You get, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And what he's talking about simply is he's the life of God embodied, and he's the truth. He's the truth embodied. He's the life of God lived out. The amazing thing is that that's actually incarnational and that what he did, he invites us to do, to embody the truth of God and to live the life of God right here, right now. And the family structure is certainly one way of doing it. But if you have any kind of abode, and and here I had to actually really cut, because I went looking for every kind of abode, you know, from uh, overnight beds that you rent at the Tokyo airport uh, to huts in Africa to big mansions. If you have any kind of abode at all, your home is an outpost of God's kingdom. Have you ever shared a meal in your house with a person of a different ethnicity? Have you ever shared your home over an extended period of time. Uh, Rain Candy Roberts, I teased them when they built their house. I said, this looks more like a bed and breakfast. And that has been true, hasn't it? Right? Uh, you know, the, um, uh, the Dillards, you know, they've always got somebody living at their house. It's amazing. So, so here's the application. I appreciate Pastor Adam does this for us. The message is coming to an end, and he says, okay, either get out the notes section of your phone or your iPad or write this down. What are some things that you can do based on understanding that the Father's house has been given to us through a relationship and through heaven breaking into earth? The Father's house is wherever the Father's children live. What can we do? Well, the first thing that we can do is we can redefine faith relationally. And the first way to redefine that is in our relationships with one another because other people can see that and then redefine our relationship with Jesus as that of trust. It really takes so much weight off of having to believe every proposition. I didn't sign up to be a card-carrying conservative Republican or a progressive Democrat or a libertarian as an article of my faith. I don't have to believe all the crap that people say I have to believe. I'm sorry I just said that word. Um, I don't have to believe all that stuff. All I have to do is have a relationship with Jesus. Redefine faith. Okay? Take inventory of what has God given you. Are you a single person who shares an apartment with two other single people? Guess what? It's an outpost of the kingdom. What has God given you? C.S. Lewis said that he, he had a dream where he went to the mansion in the sky and they showed him to his quarters and it looked exactly like his quarters at Oxford. And he went over to the bookshelf, as you mentioned C.S. Lewis would, and he said, why are not all the titles of all the books I had on earth here? And the angel said to him in Lewis's dream, he said, This library in heaven, unlike your library of earth, consists of the books you actually loaned to people. Take inventory. What has God given you? And has he given it for you or has he given it for you to be an outpost of the kingdom? By the way, I need to borrow a car for a week. Anybody got a car? 
Take it, yeah. It gets real when you get, it's all poetic when it's C.S. Lewis. He's been dead 50 years, right? (laughs) Well, what about it? You have two cars and somebody only has one? Uh, Greg Boyd's church in, uh, in Minneapolis, they're all getting tissue typed so that if people need organ donations, but not heart, but, you know, like a kidney, that if somebody needs it, they can say, hey, God gave me two, you can have one. You're joking. They're actually doing that at his church. They're taking inventory of who they are and what they have. All right. I'm two minutes long, and Andrew said there was a danger zone if I went five minutes long. All right. So, okay. So take it. All right. Number three, blur the lines. Blur the lines between heaven and earth. The cloud of his presence can come into your life now, and it can happen through worship but it can also happen through realizing that my father's house is wherever the presence of the Holy Spirit is. Blur the lines between, let's become the Johannine community, mostly because the word Johannine is just so much fun to say. It makes you sound really smart. It just means the guys that hung out with the apostle John, okay? Blur the lines between heaven and earth and realize that everything you have and do is holy unto the Lord. That's one of those, you know, Old Testament prophetic things. Even the bells in the temple, holy to the Lord. Even the fabric on the veil, holy to the Lord. Well, take an inventory of your house and then blur the lines. It's holy unto the Lord. And then finally, I've got my glasses off. Practice reincarnation. Yes, go ahead, tweet that one out. They're practicing reincarnation at the vineyard. See, Jesus is the incarnation, but he's inviting us to embody the truth and live the life. I don't care if I know the truth, but God really cares if I embody the truth. And God doesn't care if I can instruct you in how to live the life, but he cares very much if Kim and I live the life. Does that make sense? Reincarnation, it happened to Jesus. It should be happening a billion times two billion times over again and again and again. Here's four things for you. And uh, who's speaking next week? Do we know? Oh, Dr. Ray's going to ask you if you did these. Okay. So he'll start his message with, all right, get out your notebooks. All right. The father's house. It's not just a game. The father's house is not just a creation. It doesn't exist in the iCloud. It, doesn't, it does exist in the clouds of the heavens, but it also exists at 723 Lone Valley Road, 4018 Finley Drive, or everybody say your address out loud right now. Go. It's the Father's house. All right. Uh, ministry team, you want to come forward? So here's the deal. Did you know that when you gave your heart to Jesus that you also gave your stuff to Jesus? Boy, I could have just said that and saved everybody about 40 minutes. (laughs) Did you know that when you gave your heart to Jesus, you gave your stuff to Jesus? All right. There may be folks here that are facing the potential loss of a loved one. There may be folks here who are facing the struggle of that there is a separation between heaven and earth. There may be folks here who realize that the cost of discipleship is, is, it's not that it's high, it's just that it reveals how much you value other things. And that's okay. 
because this is the place we can do business with that. You guys have any, like, wordy words that you want to give? Because then Andrew will be mad at you and not me. I'll blame it on the ministry team. <laughs> 